Hello, and welcome to another episode of Bimbo Bookshelf. My name is Britt, and today, Sophie and I will be speaking with Dr. Don Owen. Don is a former teacher, a historian, and a lifelong educator who also happens to have a deep connection with this story. We met through the book club's Instagram page around the time we were getting prepared to meet for our live discussion around Ishmael about a year and a half ago. Don shares with us his personal connection with the book, what it was like meeting the author, and many more things. So settle in and listen up as we close out our discussion on the remarkable book that is Ishmael. really appreciate you coming on and being somebody that we can kind of trust and work with to interview because it's definitely been a learning curve anytime we record. So if you wanted to just sort of introduce yourself, I was thinking maybe like your educational background, a bit about yourself in relationship to the book and the themes, and then maybe how you first came across Ishmael. Yeah, um, that's a lot. So uh, <laughs> uh, my name is Don and um, I've been a lifelong student and a lifelong educator. And I'll go into that in a little bit more detail in just a second. But um, yeah, my my first experience with Ishmael actually was a good friend of mine from college gave it to me the year it came out. Uh, he read it right away. And um, he's given me several books, but two, two books are probably two of the most life-changing books I've ever read. Um, the first one was one he gave me upon graduation as I was heading off to be a idealistic, uh, young history teacher, uh, looking to change the world. And that book was, um, Neil Postman's book called teaching is, is a subversive activity. And that is a phenomenal book. Um, and I read it right away. I think as I was doing my student teaching in, uh, Minneapolis South high school, um, I grew up in Minnesota um, and and uh, went to Carleton College, um, majored in psychology and uh, minored in history education and educational studies. Neil Postman's book, uh, Teaching of the Subversive Activity, is one of those books that you have to be ready for. And I don't think I was ready for it when I was reading it, doing my student teaching. I ended up putting it away for almost 35 years and as my education career in public education came to an abrupt end, I picked it up again. And it was one of those books that's like, it's transformed the way I think about educational systems. It also fits perfectly with Ishmael. And so I give full credit to my friend, Steve, who um, may listen to this uh, podcast at some point, uh, because he gave me that book. And then he also gave me Ishmael a few years later. And I read Ishmael right away and just devoured it. As a history teacher, it was just fascinating to read um, a book that delved into history and culture in ways that I had never thought about. And I identified a lot with the narrator, um, as I think many people do. Sure. I hope many people do. <laughs> um, and I, I became one of those people that, that uh, kind of became a, a Daniel Quinn fanboy. And um, I 
bought extra copies and I kept them in my classroom library. I taught eighth grade U.S. history uh, at a at a uh, middle school in a uh, Midwest very progressive community, um, and I actually read parts of it out loud to my students at times and um, asked them to think differently about where they got their ideas. That worked okay, but I also learned in the 90s that you had the same kinds of groups that you're seeing in the 2020s. Um, there's a group in our community called TIPS to inform our parents about schools, which said that uh, any books or curriculum that talked about um, things in an anti-American way or uh, had talking animals, or I could go on this list. I, I, I was, um, uh, I had a formal, yeah, I had a formal complaint. Right, right. So I had a formal complaint lodged against me by this group. Um, and it wasn't just around Ishmael. It was around the fact that I was teaching Columbus, um, using a curriculum called rethinking Columbus, which then turned into rethinking schools, um, which, um, is a, is a, uh, history curriculum that does a lot of counter narrative work, um, what I would call real history. Um, but so Ishmael, Ishmael became a book that I just fell in love with. And I'm holding up a copy right now that unfortunately is like not a copy that has my notes in it or my, <laughs> my, um, my post-it notes in it because I've given away the last three copies that I've read. And, um, and the last time I read it was in 2019. And uh, that copy not only had my notes, but also my dad's notes. Um, my dad and I, I think, probably were responsible for giving away about 30 copies of Ishmael to friends, families. That's and incredible. We, we, uh, we wanted to try and influence um, or, or mess with their minds. Um, <laughs> so back to, back to Daniel Quinn for a second. Um, when, I was, when I was teaching, I went to several... Uh, state, regional, and national conferences for social studies educators. And I'll never forget, I was at one in St. Louis, and um, I was in the, the, what do you call it, the exhibition hall where all the vendors have their um, their books and their, you know, swag that they're giving away. And I'm walking through, and all of a sudden I see a poster that looks very familiar. And it was the um, the leaf with the sun, right? And it said it was like the poster that you would picture in, in uh, Ishmael's room. Um, it said, teacher seeks pupil. Oh, my gosh. And I looked and there's Daniel Quinn sitting by himself behind this, this booth. And he's selling and signing books. And I like flipped out. That's amazing. <laughs> um, and then for like the next three years, every big conference that I went to, he was there. And it really, like, my memory of one of them, um, I can picture him sitting in the lobby of the hotel, of the conference hotel, and he literally was surrounded by, like, 30 people who were sitting at his feet. And he he was this kind of guru, the kind of thing that he didn't want to be. Um, but he was. And I, I was listening to your, uh, your episode one, and I thought about that moment as I was listening about how, you know, part of what he didn't want was he didn't want to become this this like guru or sage or anything but 
he definitely was, and he played the part really well. Um, I remember him as a as a um, fairly short, um, not round, but but semi round uh, individual with with graying hair and a gray beard, and he just had the sweetest personality. And he would just start talking, and people would just like go silent and just listen to him. Um, and so I was I was telling uh, Britt earlier that I have a couple signed copies um, that are somewhere, and I have no idea. I think one of them I may have given away uh, the last time I read the book in 2019 to a, a good friend who um, who enjoyed it as much as I did. And it was interesting because as you were talking in episode one about when you both read the book, I was listening to that. And I was like, I knew the date because <laughs> I was following a hashtag of Ishmael on Instagram. Oh, yeah. And yes. all of a sudden this, this, post popped up um from bimbo bookshelf and i'm like well that's one of the most interesting names i've ever heard and it was ishmael and i was like this is the coolest thing and you were talking about doing an instagram live around ishmael right and i like put it on my calendar and i was there and i've been oh. a fan of uh both of you since then and um that's and, such a compliment <laughs> well i really yeah, that's really I, you've done an amazing job with the books that you've read and with your um, presentation of of not just the content of the books, but also how you integrate them with your lives, it's been it's been a phenomenal thing for me to listen to. Um, and as a history teacher, I get uh, very strong um, vibes of how thorough you both are in your research and how um, just how how uh, scholarly you you attack. The text that you read so i'm going to stop talking because i don't know that i've uh introduced myself <laughs> no. well and i've already jumped into um discussing the book and discussing your your podcast as well so that's perfect honestly and that really thank you for saying that that means so much and i can't speak for sophia but i know that you know we kind of briefly talked about this before but hearing big uh props from a history teacher to two formerly homeschooled kids that like really makes us feel good you know because I think at least for me growing up books were something that made me feel like I could educate myself they felt like a way out of the mindset that I wanted to escape and the places that I didn't want to be at anymore and Ishmael was very much one of these books too. And I just think it's great that we have you on here to talk about this. I didn't realize that you hadn't actually met the author um, prior to his death. That's incredible to know that. Um, Sophia and I have both said that it seems that we have this proclivity to find authors shortly after they've passed away and just become very attached to their work and feel this sort of loss of that person being gone and not being able to dig in their mind anymore. But I think, like you said about Daniel Quinn, he really has kind of left a legacy of whether it was wanted to be, you know, a guru or someone to look up to as really an example to remind us all that it's important to seek education outside of the box. It's important to really step up and say something when you feel like the world isn't working the way that it should. And this is the kind of book that I think really sparks these kinds of conversations 
within people. And it's probably why you've given away close to 30 copies, why I gave away Sophia's copy. And I do <laughs> owe you one <laughs> back. Oh, <man. laughs> Sophia I, let me I borrow the book. That. I gave it away. I mean, but that's what I would, all I could hope for. And I, I love the idea of it being out there in the world. Like I, I love that what you're saying, Dawn, about how you've like given away so many copies that the friend that recommended it to me has done the same thing. And I feel like this is definitely a book that has that like kind of impact. And I think that part of it is like, you can't necessarily have some of these conversations with people if you don't necessarily feel like they are on the same page, or maybe you're just kind of feeling like this is waking up for the first time yourself. So it's almost like a way of, you know, connecting and sharing that. So I love that we all kind of have that in common. And also that you had the connection with your dad that he like shared your passion for that. Cause that was like, that's just really heartwarming. Yeah. It, thank you. It, it, um, it is wild. I, I wanted to say one thing about, um, you know, your, your collective story um, because I've heard you talk about being homeschooled and as someone who was a public school educator and administrator for my entire, um, wow, for 35 years of my life, let me just put it that way. Um, I, uh, I thought a lot about that. And when I was listening to your episode one, and you were talking about this idea of, um, I think you used the term, you know, being in a cult and coming out of the cult, right? right. So mm -hmm. one of the themes of Ishmael is this idea of captivity and you you both talked about it in, in the first one right so one of the things that you were never captives of was you were never captives of public education right you might have been <laughs> captives of of right. your religion and your your family culture and upbringing but um public education one of the things that i learned was public education is one of the um largest and most um uh, intractable. I don't know if that's the right word. It's like the fundamental um, grounds for societal brainwashing and coercion. Right. right. <laughs> and so, thing. so, and, and I hate, I hate to use those phrases, right? Because it sounds very quickly, like I'm saying public education is indoctrinating people. Well, mm -hmm. it is. <laughs> um, and then, oh, okay. and then, and then all of a sudden I'm, I'm sounding like, uh, some of your neighbors, um, in, in your, your great state, um, oh yeah <laughs> um, well you know what's interesting that you say that because I do think that you know some people's viewpoints simply just can never understand but I think that to some degree what's so wonderful about this book in particular is that it kind of touches on that thing that seems to be a neutral topic for everyone right. which is not wanting anyone else to have say or control over their story. And no matter mm -hmm. what brand of that you're into, whether it's positive and good for you, or whether you're a person that needs some healing, like a lot of our neighbors down here in the South <laughs> do. I mean, I think that that's one thing that's really so wonderful about this book is that it gives kind of a blank space for you to teach yourself what that really means at least for me I felt that about this book um and like you were saying about public education you know that's one thing that I had really felt like was a disadvantage to me my entire life 
And now that I'm an adult, it is something, especially having children of my own that are in the public school system, seeing the difference in how I learned growing up and seeing the difference how they learned, it really is just incredibly shockingly different. Um, And it's interesting. It's interesting (laughs) because it doesn't mean that it's necessarily all bad or all good, because I do think um, as far as public school systems, there is definitely a lot of indoctrination, but I do see a positive, like the positivity and bringing children out into their communities, being around the kids that are in their neighborhoods, learning how to get along with people they wouldn't know otherwise. I think there is definitely some use for it. It could just be a lot better. <laughs> yeah, and it has to yeah. it has to provide space um, for for alternate ideas. And and it also has to not just provide space, but it also has to somehow work on being inclusive um in that space that and that's where i see so many connections between the book i referenced before neil postman's book teaching as a subversive teaching as a subversive activity um and ishmael is this idea that we do have agency in our lives and we do have some sense of of responsibility teachers make ten thousand decisions you know in the first two hours of the school day that have huge impacts on their their students and have nothing to do with the written curriculum um and or the the mandated curriculum or whatever you want to call it or national uh national mandates uh my my dissertation um was on the ways that uh no child left behind was implemented by uh, principals who identify themselves as uh, social justice leaders. Hmm. And that was fascinating because many of them identified No Child Left Behind as a, uh, as a piece of legislation that was couched in issues of social justice. And, and yet it was implemented in such ways that it like absolutely did the opposite. It, it reinforced what public education does so wonderfully, which is um, sort, select, and discriminate against uh, people who do not fit the dominant culture. And that, that mm-hmm. goes right back into Ishmael because the dominant culture um, is, so, uh, is so prevalent that it's sometimes hard to, to, to see beyond it. And when you do start to see beyond it, um, I just I reread a, a just a section um, near the end where um, the narrator was talking about being lonely and depressed because he was starting to see uh, the world differently, and he realized that he couldn't explain it to anyone else, and and he was feeling like this tension of like how do I even begin? Um, and I've felt that many times in my career and in my life is is this sense of. Um, I see the world differently and I can't explain it to people. Um, that's, I think that that's a big theme in Ishmael and it's always good to come back to the book and the text to remind myself that, yeah, we do. And so if you just put this in there, right, we have agency and responsibility over our lives. You just wrote that in our, in our group chat here. Um, and I think that's so important. And I'll let you talk more about that. 
Yeah, I just love everything that you're saying because when I was preparing for um, meeting up today, one of the things that I was thinking about was like how I wanted to revisit the rest of the book, how what I wanted to talk about as we kind of wrapped things up and also just kind of reconsidering our conversation from the first episode about this. And one of the things that we talked about a lot and that I felt like I was really struggling with articulating was revisiting the kind of grief and loss and loneliness that you're talking about that I felt when I initially read this book and also, you know, as I was kind of like processing a lot of the adjacent topics that I got into as a result of it, like, you know, really deep green movement or like anti-civ stuff. And also, you know, at the time working in an industrial warehouse, a shipping warehouse overnight, you know, none of these things are good for your mental health really. Um, and also just seeing the reality of like our society and our lifestyle. But I feel like a thing that I've really shifted um, since that time and like that I wanted to reflect on since then is I do think that now I've kind of overcome that narrative that I also had. Like I realized that another story or myth that I had developed within the realm of my thinking was this, um, you know, the capitalism realism, the idea of there is no alternative, the idea that nothing that I do matters. Um, and I don't think that when I initially read Ishmael, I identified that that was one of the myths that I was telling too. But when we revisited that first episode and I was thinking how I could reframe, like, well, I don't feel depressed about this anymore. I do feel hopeful. Um, I was thinking really about how Brittany highlighted like the the way that stories can heal, you know, so I thought a lot about all of that and I'm happy that you brought that forward and also happy that we're all, I think, not feeling <laughs> dismayed by it. We're all feeling like we have opportunities to create within our personal agency and responsibility. This definitely feels like a safe group for that. And I found, I think, Don, what you were talking about, I, as soon as you said that, that I remembered we had all, all three of us separately have had conversations about this part of the book about that when you get that feeling of knowing something's wrong but unable to name it in your society and he says in this book that once you learn to discern the voice of mother culture humming in the background telling her story over and over again to the people of your culture you'll never stop being conscious of it so he is basically saying once you do figure that out you can never unhear it. And Dawn, like you were saying, um, and I was hoping maybe you could speak to a little bit how you did kind of have that awakening and mind change that ultimately led to your career change out of education. Um, if you could speak about that a little bit. Sure. Um, I want to address one thing first because it was in my notes um, when, when you texted and said, um, let's record and invited me on, I, there was one thing that I wanted to uh, talk about a little bit that's bothered yeah. me oh, no. um, with Ishmael. And um, and it, it bothered me in most in 2019, when I the last time I read it through and took copious notes in it. And it's the term mother culture, right? And I'd never really noticed it before. And I don't know if it's just the evolution of, of the concept of matriarchy versus patriarchy, but the fact that mother culture is the keeper of our stories and the stories that are essentially stories of takers, 
and mother culture is is a taker story that that bothered me and i just wanted to put that out there right that that all of a sudden i was like i was having this tension with i, I wanted to talk to daniel quinn and i wanted to say why mother culture when clearly we're in a patriarchal society and that actually the agricultural revolution that that you know ishmael uh does such a wonderful job explaining is still going on right the revolution is still happening right in front of us and we're still participants in this in agricultural and industrial revolution um that was a shift from matriarchal societies to patriarchal societies those things coincided and i want to have a discussion there and i don't know that yeah. i'm ready to like dig deep well you know i actually have a theory Okay. Yeah. And this is just a theory that I've made up on the spot. So it's not cool. thought out. Um, and I might regret it later, but here we are. So as I was hearing you say that I never thought about this before and never considered it, but the book that we're currently reading in the book club androgyny kind of talks about this, the, at least the part that I'm reading right now is basically talking about the functionality, like the, <laughs> the difference in society from the matriarch to the patriarch and how like historically that has changed. I feel like a big theme in this book and other books that Sophia and I have read a lot recently, it's kind of this underlying telling that storytelling of itself is healing, that it is power in mother culture she whispers in your ear. She tells the story that you want to hear. I feel like mother culture is something that we're more okay with listening to, especially in a patriarchal society. And maybe that's got nothing to do with it, <laughs> but I feel like when you hear the whispers of mother culture, or you think of a mother or a soft feminine figure whispering to you, it goes through your ear so easy. When I think of a it's patriarchal system, notice. right. When I think of a patriarchal system, I think of rough and rigid and something to rebel against. But mother culture just, it makes it make sense to me to some degree that it's the quiet whisper voice that people don't even realize that they're listening to. So wow, that's my new theory. Really interesting. <laughs> I actually know a little bit to answer this, Don, but I can't find uh, like info on it anywhere. I've been like frantically googling while y'all are talking. Oh, that's the but worst. But I feeling. know that at some point there was like a FAQ that I read from Daniel Quinn, or like a question and answer where people had addressed questions to him, and one of them specifically was why did you name this mother culture? And if I could just paraphrase from what I remember, he essentially said like, um, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't something that he did from the instinct of misogyny. He did address that because he has had like people say that. And I think that it is a really fair thing to bring forward. Like, I'm glad that you mentioned that. And I feel like that's something that matters a lot to both of us. And it's something I appreciate that you care about. And I'm trying to remember now, like, I basically think it was kind of similar to what Brittany's saying. Like, he thought of it as um, it's the thing that you, it's kind of like the nurture, I think, as he was kind of associating it. And also, like, that it's it's the subtle, you know, it's there in the undercurrent. But now that I'm talking about it, I'm like, I really got to find this. Um, but I know that at some point he's addressed it. He's also addressed, like, 
why didn't he use gender neutral language yeah. and why he made the narrator a man, which I can drop um, in the chat and we could talk about. But I was also going to say that, Don, I really was glad that you brought forward the idea of shifting from, you know, and like if we just say hunter gatherer society with a matriarchal um, focus versus like agrarian culture and therefore civilization being um, a patriarchal focus because, you know, if someone like myself feel like really engrossed in things like Magia religious practices or things that often are reconstructionist in nature when they talk about history. That is something I hear often. And I often like, you know, I'm interested in the historical veracity of it. I hope for that, you know, like it'd be nice if we've had contrast historically. And I think we should all be modern enough to like move towards something in the center. But like, you know, it's just cool to hear that um, brought forward from you, like with your perspective about history. And that's definitely something that I would also say about this book that got me very curious about. It's just history in general. Like um, I mentioned in the first episode, reading the Bible again, because I was like thinking about history differently, thinking about concepts a little bit differently or just being willing to like I guess learn which is an interesting thing that I hadn't really associated with this book too is just like being willing to reconsider what I know which right. I think is probably like the whole point I think yeah I, when when you said in the first episode about about uh reading the bible again uh, that brought back a memory of mine um when I was reading Ishmael for the first time which was I remember calling my dad and I asked him if he could find my Bible because when I was um, blanking on the word, um, when I went through confirmation in the Presbyterian church, uh, when I was confirmed, uh, they gave everyone a, a small Bible with their name printed on it. Right. And I didn't move that with me because as soon as I was done with confirmation classes, I was done with organized religion. And that's been pretty much true for my entire life. And I called my dad and I asked him if he, if they still had it and they did. And so, um, that, that's what got us talking, my dad and I talking about Ishmael and he was just fascinated by my take and my interest in the Bible as, um, as a reference point to this, uh, broader conversation about society and, and culture. And so that it, when you mentioned that, I was like, yeah, I had a that exact same that exact same <laughs> sensation, right? Is that oh my gosh, it brought me back to a Bible that I never thought I would touch again. And yet it brought me back there in a way that that um allowed me to to look at the Bible and and the stories in the Bible differently and also allowed me to see how those stories play out in such subtle ways. And I I do want to come back to uh, Brett, what you were saying about oh, yeah. about mother culture being this feminine whisper that is almost more um, uh, you didn't use this word, but I, as you were talking, I was thinking about the word seductive, right? It's yeah. more seductive and it's more like it's totally. softer and it's and it's less you don't want to rebel against it. That makes everything about the big concepts in Ishmael that much more powerful because, and you, you asked me a question a while ago about, about, you know, how it fit into my leaving public education. And um, I will say I did not go 
willingly or quietly from public education. And um, and just, I, I won't get into the details because that's for another podcast or uh, probably <laughs> not actually. Um, <laughs> totally but, okay. <laughs> um, as I became an administrator, I, I became more and more frustrated with the um, the way the system, the way the system of public education was set up to discriminate against people and specifically people who had been historically marginalized, you know, whether it was um, black people, people who were experiencing poverty, uh, people who were uh, immigrants to this country. And that's historically, I mean, that's a big theme historically in in most of our curriculum is the way immigrants have been treated in this country. And yet it's always, you know, it's always this melting pot. And so it's all good in the end. It's yay. Um, whereas, whereas you don't really talk about the fact that no, actually what that is, is that's, that's the real indoctrination into the dominant culture mm. and whether you're, you know, white, black, brown, um, English, Spanish, uh, Congolese, in terms of language groups, you are all indoctrinated into the dominant culture by public education, and it does a wonderful job. And those people who don't fit um, are left behind. Look at the term, no child left behind. No, 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 we're actually leaving people behind, and those that we don't want to leave behind, we will expel. Um, my, my end of my career as an administrator was um, around issues of um, of student discipline and disparity data among um, black, white, and brown students. And um, our school district had done a lot of work with restorative practices, restorative justice, and we had reduced the number of out-of-school suspensions and, and, and expulsions massively over the course of about three or four years. That was exciting and we celebrated that. But one day I was doing a data dig with a group of principals and we looked at every kid that was suspended out of school at the high school level. Every kid except one was either black or brown. And I'm like, we have created the perfectly inequitable system, right? Where we are, we're, yes, we're celebrating this wonderful data that we're reducing the number of kids who are being suspended out of school and yet we're making it so that we're not suspending any white kids out of school. And the only kids we're suspending out of school were, were black and Latino. And that's true of many school districts, right? Um, when I started to push on that, um, the and I'm, I'm gonna say this with with not, not any kind of, um, no, I'm gonna back up. Um, when I started to push on that, the resistance that I got from multiple fronts was um, stronger and more vehement than I had imagined because I live in a very progressive community. I'd grown up in this community in terms of as, a, as an adult. You know, I moved here when I was 22, um, was in one school district the entire time. I started as a substitute teacher and became superintendent of schools. I was shocked that I couldn't make those changes. And that as soon as I started doing things like saying, no, we're not going to expel any more kids until we figured out how to deal with this racial disparity issue, um, the the proverbial wheels came off the school bus. And um, 
parent groups, teacher groups, um, community groups, taxpayers started to call me all kinds of names from communist to socialist to um, uh, black nationalist. And right, it was just, it was, to me, I, I lived through that in ways that were really interesting, but it, it said to me, it brought back that theme of Ishmael of we are captives in our systems, right? And I was a captive in that system. And even though I was at the top of a system, I thought I could change. Eh, it wasn't going to change, no matter how much power and influence I had in the in the school system. That was not going to change. And the pushback was was um, incredibly harsh and incredibly painful for me, my family, and the entire community. I don't want to minimize that either. Um, and it came from all sides. And I would say that the the um, the one thing that maybe kind of um, shifted the narrative in this community was COVID because two years later, COVID hit and all of a sudden um, we now have racial disparities in our school districts where I live uh, that pale in comparison to what they were before because when COVID hit, we just lost families and the families that we lost weren't um, white middle class or white working class or white upper middle class families. They were black, brown, indigenous and um, and immigrant families. And, and they just disappeared. And many of them have not come back to public school. Well, first of all, I want to thank you for sharing that story, because that's I mean, I think a lot of time we have the best of faith that if we just keep working hard and keep fighting for the right thing and we keep showing up that we can make change. And that's not to say that we can't. I definitely think it's possible. And I definitely think people coming together is the only way for that to be possible. But sometimes it takes a shocking series of events when you're trying to do good to really realize how confining systems that we live in and that we've built in this society can be and it's it's scary it's sad and you know the truth of the matter is there really is not a lot of people willing to put their voice and neck out there and on the line because of that and i would say probably even more so since 2020 uh, like you said everything is everything is increased it everything has increased. The world has definitely changed. And, you know, even people that do have the time and mean well and show up and do these things, it, it's going to take more than that, a collective reimagining of how to make change, which I think is an ongoing theme in this book too. And one thing that I really love about this book is that it kind of opened up my mind to the idea of healing through storytelling. Um, this is something Sophia and I have talked a lot about. Um, we talk a lot about our <laughs> collective favorite author, Clarissa Pigola Estes, and she has this book called Women Who Run With the Wolves that really had kind of opened my eyes to the idea that stories, fables, myths, our reality to some degree. And that when we pay attention to stories as a community, 
it can be teaching tools. And this book is very much one of those teaching tools. It's a story. It is trying to help us understand the story around it and make sense of it and see how we can reimagine it. And I think that that's true with a lot of stories and a lot of books and why, especially Sophia and I, as formerly homeschooled, <laughs> really dig into these books because there really is there really is a lot that storytelling can teach you, which honestly, I think kind of piggybacks on what you were saying on the way that these systems are set up, school in particular, education systems, since we happen to be on this track, you know, with, I think about book bans, um, you know, like you said, mm -hmm. they are presented as a protection from children, you know, not wanting to expose children to uh, violence or sexuality or things that they shouldn't be. But if you ever go through the book bans on, you know, I'm sure I don't have to tell you, but on grade school, public children, it's usually books about different family systems, mm -hmm. um, different ways of living outside of the box and other people. And it does leave people behind and it makes it harder for children to connect to themselves with history and connect themselves with what they're learning, which puts them at a disadvantage because it doesn't, it's just something that they have to do and something that they're not a part I of. I just saw. Always struggle with. Go ahead. Yeah, no. <laughs> I didn't want to cut you up, but I just saw even Cowgirls Get the Blues was a book that was banned on Duval County recently. Oh, come I'm on. About that. I'm reading it right now. So Cowgirls Get the Blues. But, um, I just, I love everything that y'all were saying and especially um, that a collective reimagining of how to make change. Because when I was thinking about feeling less pessimistic and feeling more hopeful, a lot of that has to do with just moving from doing things that I feel like I had to do, like for example, working a job that is unfulfilling and does not teach me any skills and I like am damaging my body by selling my labor, you know, to doing something that I enjoy doing. And I think that that does come with a level of like privilege and personal accountability and like acceptance that not everyone has the ability to do that. But something that I have really thought about in relationship to this book is like, what are the stories that we're telling ourselves? What are the myths that we're telling ourselves about our life, about how we live our lives? Like, yes, it is a physical reality that we all have to work and on some level sell our labor and our time in order to maintain our existence. But can we reimagine what that looks like? Can we be more creative? Can we be willing to accept like the trade-off for working something that's more fulfilling if we make less money? Like, is that an option for us? And I think that that's so many of us don't feel like it is, which I think is why there's that sense of like stuckness or frustration. Um, but there was just something that you were saying that made me think about that. And I was just going to add to, I've been thinking a lot about the words of um, author Tony Cade um, Bambaro, who said the role of the artist is to make the revolution irresistible. Um, and you guys have both mentioned something about like the idea of, you know, what we say and what we imagine and how it could be also enticing or exciting or like reimagine things. And I think that that's part of what Brett was getting at with, you know, the idea of story being healing and that the stories that we tell can shift how we look at things. Because one tangible result that I've had is, you know, part of shifting what I do uh, for vocation and spending more time in my community is that 
I also now work with people who are involved in regenerative agriculture or urban agriculture or homesteading. Like, whereas maybe when I first read this book, I was like obsessed with the honestly fantasy that I needed to like sell my home and move and buy a plot of land. And that somehow that would magically make me able to keep plants alive. <laughs> And able to shift every single bad habit in my life, like not to put a value judgment on it, but like, you know, these habits that are part of these like destructive ways of being that were, you know, frankly indoctrinated into, right? And now I'm thinking about like, okay, could I be present with my local ecosystem? Like, what does that look like? What does it look like to find ways of getting food that I, I know, like the hands that produced it? Like, what does it look like to? sort of like scale back and even just meeting myself where I'm at if that means you know like eating something out of my freezer instead of eating Taco Bell like I think that's a win you know like thinking about those kinds of things to throw back to our last episode um I was just about to say we should start a tally of how many episodes we mentioned Taco Bell in and then maybe (laughs) one day they'll sponsor us and we'll get that Baja Blast River that we've always dreamed of (laughs) right oh my god I really that, appreciate that really what. Is the yeah, I, I mean, <laughs> who doesn't want to float down the rivers of the Baja Blast? Come on now. <laughs> but I really appreciate what you were saying because I know that you know this, but I obviously had the same thought because we had talked about buying land and doing this together. And then, you know, yes. hello, we have validation. <laughs> we're telling each other this is the right answer to both of us really yes. getting to a point where it's like, okay, well, what would that actually mean? What would that actually mean? take from us now and require from us in the future and then slowly kind of realizing that maybe these huge lifestyle changes and system changes and things that are so out of our reality to control maybe those aren't the real answers into taking the steps to change the narrative in our lives maybe it is as simple as knowing the hands that made your food or like you said being present to your local ecosystem I uh, laughed when you were saying that if you bought a plot of land that maybe that meant you could keep a plant alive because my house plants (laughs) they never make it you know what I'm saying I'm embarrassed honestly as a elder millennial I feel like I should have at least 10 to 20 plants alive in my home, but that's not the reality. (laughs) It just didn't happen for me. You know, I'm very blessed, uh, happy and fortunate that I've been able to keep my dogs and children alive, but the plants, it just doesn't really happen. So for me, I, you know, I know that that's not going to happen without a collective. You have to stop at some point and think, what is my role in creating the myth and story and culture out that I want to live. And maybe by doing so, I can inspire others because there's only so much that we can control about our surroundings and what's around us, you know? And it takes a whole village, as they say, you know, it takes community, it takes the whole culture as a collective offering what they have to offer, you know, to be able to change the dynamic of society. So I just, I have like, like five or six thoughts. And then as, as you two were talking, like, um, one of the things that I enjoy talking to other people about books 
um, why I enjoy talking to other people about books is the the connections that it makes to books from my past, but also I'm pulling books out of both of you that I'm like writing things down and, and making connections of books I haven't read that I plan to now. Um, but one of the things that, that comes from the theme of Ishmael, right, is this, how do you, how do you make change? And he does, the, the narrator does have this moment, um, and I don't want to give away too much of the plot, but he does have this moment where he's like, I have to find other students. I have to find Ishmael's other students. And I think that that is um, a powerful reminder to all of us that, yeah, as individuals, we can make little changes. But one of the reasons why I gave away so many copies and when my dad started giving away copies of Ishmael was to start conversations with people and, and a way to build connections with people. And so I love that books can do that. And that's one of the reasons why I'm a fan of your podcast and of your book club is that um, it is, I mean, right in the middle of the pandemic, right? It gave me a connection that I didn't have. And at a time when I needed connections to people, um, I did also want to say that that idea of like, um, so if you were talking about um, making changes in your career and so one of the things that I did was I, I stepped outside of public education and I continue to love public education, even though I criticize it. Um, I wrote a blog post at one point kind of based on um, James Baldwin's famous quote when he exiled himself to Europe. And he said, um, I love America dearly, which is why I reserve the right to criticize it harshly. Yes. And that's the way I view public education, mm -hmm. right? Is, is I love public education dearly but I have to criticize it harshly because it is um, it is part of this dominant culture that actually harms people. Um, but one of the things that I've been doing that goes back to something, and I'm going to try and make this as concise as possible. Um, so if you use the phrase, a collective reimagining, um, or maybe Britt did, I don't remember, but one of you used the phrase, a collective reimagining how to make change. Okay, so Britt, I, <laughs> I don't I, I didn't remember what miss. I say, but... Um, well, well, like, I got to be talking. Sophia, Sophia like, uh, wrote it in the notes. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, um, I just wanted to pull that out because that collective reimagining is one of the things that I, um, when I shifted, I started doing a lot of workshops um, around this concept of racial healing. And so they're they're small. They're basically restorative circles, uh, focused on um, how to heal from and about racism. And they've been incredibly powerful for me. And as a facilitator, I'm more often the participant, and I'm a I benefit from um, getting to heal with many many people over the last four years, and. One of the one of the books that was um, was really uh, a prominent book for me was Adrian Marie Brown's um, book, um, and I'm going to blank on the name. Holding Change mm -hmm. is the name of the book, um, and it's it talks about emergent strategies. And in that book, she talks about this idea of a collective reimagining. Why can't we reimagine the world differently? And then the other piece that I want to bring in, and I'm not. I don't want to do a racial healing workshop, but I would love to do a racial healing workshop. Um, <laughs> is a is a uh, psychologist uh, from 
almost 30 years ago now um, named Bobby Haro. And um, Bobby Haro was a, a, a queer woman who developed this concept of um, the cycle of socialization. And that to me, reading Bobby Haro's description of the cycle of socialization, and this is where it ties back to Ishmael, the cycle of socialization is mother culture. It is, mm -hmm. it is the cultural story and the myths that we tell ourselves. And Bobby Haro did it from a, a, uh, a feminist and a uh, racial perspective that was very powerful. And I use that, I use Bobby Haro's work a lot in my racial healing circles to, to introduce this concept of, we are all products of this society, whether we are black, white, brown, indigenous, um, you know, neurotypical, we're all products of this society. And we have to understand that the driving forces behind this this society and the cycle of socialization are not love and they're not community and they're not connection. They're based on fear and shame and, and um, guilt. And to step outside of that is liberating. And um, Bobby Haro's second work was called the cycle of liberation. And, mm. and it was about a creative reimagining. So um I don't know. No. I just, I, I wanted to share all that because again, all of these things fit with Ishmael for me, right. because Ishmael was like <laughs> the, I'm going to say the second book that changed my life. And yet it has influenced every book that I've read since then um, in terms of kind of providing the schema and the structure for how I understand the world. Um, and so again, I, I go back to, um, the fall of 2021, where I saw this Instagram post that I hadn't seen. There were no posts on hashtag Ishmael for <laughs> years. Aww. And then all of a sudden there's this post like, hey, I want to do an Instagram live about Ishmael. It's a really cool book. And I'm like, oh my Let's God. Do it. I, yeah. <laughs> and and um, so I, I, I'm honored and a little uh, uh, overwhelmed by being in your presence both of your presence um, because i've been watching you guys um do this wonderful um concept of a book club slash podcast that that um really feeds me intellectually every month so oh, I just want to say that. that's so kind thank you and i just wanted to say too that you know i am so thankful that you followed that hashtag because you know i think a big part of what we wanted to do with this book club and podcast is not just not only share the books that we love and talk about it, but to find more people to talk about with it. And I think that this book particularly kind of to piggyback on something you said about how after reading Ishmael, it had kind of influenced all the other books that you've read since then. And I think that it's either a quote someone said about the book, or it's something he mentions in the book about, you know, once you read this book, you don't look at anything else the same. You don't read anything else the same. And I have definitely noticed, and I think we've talked about this a bit, Soph and I, that there seems to be, at least for me, particularly after that book, a reoccurring theme that I can't get rid of, even if it's written, <laughs> like you said, from a completely different perspective and said in a completely different tone, whether you're calling it mother culture or the 
psychoanalytic thing that you just said from the other lady. <laughs> but yeah, we're it, also it, like um, cycle of socialization. Right. Okay. Yes, that one. It Cycle seems like there are so many well, um, people. Yeah, it's there's so many. Exactly. She. There's so many people that are already naming this. That have already have this passion to speak and share and through story encourage people to do that themselves. Which I think is kind of my point um, when I was talking about stories being healing. I think that there are so many different ways that we can use stories to write what we see wrong with society and to reach out to people. Another way to bring community together is to share these stories. And Ishmael is really just one of those stories that you can't help but share. I don't think that I have met a person that's read Ishmael and hasn't felt the burning desire to share it. I, the person that I gave Sophia's book to had told me very shortly after I gave him the book that not only did he read the whole thing in like two nights, but he gave it to his mom and had to order another copy because he needed to give that to a friend. And I was like, all right, well, I'm not getting that one back, but it has done well in the world. <laughs> it's just such a cool experience getting to meet you just through, you know, just through the Ishmael hashtag and then to having this great conversation where I feel like I, you know, can't speak for Sophia, but I feel like we've really all mutually benefited from this. And it's been just such a great experience. And we've really have appreciated you sharing your story and coming on with us and sharing how Ishmael has impacted you in your life. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah. No, like I said, I'm, I'm really honored to be here. So. Oh, Oh my God, just like mutual love and respect for all of you guys. This is such a good feeling. (laughs) So Dawn, I wanted to ask you too, if you wanted to um, plug anything, your social media, your business, anything out there that you would like to kind of share with everyone? Yeah. So um, a little behind the scenes here. um, One of the things when, when uh, Britt, you first announced that you were kind of moving from an Instagram live to a podcast. Um, you were about uh, two weeks ahead of um, an idea that that another person that I met over the pandemic on. Um, actually, we were in a we were in a racial healing um, trainer of trainers workshop, and we've become good friends. Uh, another teacher, middle school teacher from uh, um, Ontario, Canada, and. And we were, we'd meet weekly and just have conversations and we started recording them for, um, for posterity. But then we're like, some of our conversations could become a podcast. And so (laughs) we actually have, we actually have two episodes in the can, but not um, uploaded anywhere yet. And I was, um, I was bugging Brit a couple of weeks ago about, um, you know, I'm, uh, I'm a Luddite. I'm not a millennial. I'm the oldest. <laughs> I'm the oldest of the generation X's that you can get. Um, not to give away too much my age, but um, <laughs> so what you're saying uh, is you're qualified. I'm 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 qualified to do what? I don't know. Um, <laughs> Talk about the, life here on this. I'm podcast. not the greatest generation, <laughs> but um, no, I, I saw an Instagram meme the, the other day that um, about Generation X having lived through every. Um, every series of um of style and fashion twice 
and and that therefore we're, we should be the most qualified to uh, to make comments about fashion today. And I'm like, no, um, <laughs> but um, but those those two uh, it's called the Equity Lens podcast, and um, it's really we talk about uh, educational equity, educational justice, uh, racial justice, racial equity. Um, and we will hopefully be dropping those uh, sometime soon. Uh, you can follow me um, at Lead for Equity. The four is a number four um, on Instagram. And uh, I sometimes post some things about racial healing, uh, about leadership. I do leadership coaching. Um, and then I do a lot of bird photography. So my my private Instagram. I was um, hoping you'd is, bring that up. <laughs> is mainly bird photography and. I actually, um, because of because of where I'm at in life, uh, kind of my idea of buying a plot of land is um, really becoming a nomad and jumping in my car and and driving and finding beautiful spots in nature to meditate, mm. um, to uh, commune with nature, to learn, and um, and that's what that's kind of what I've been doing over the last couple of years is transitioning my life from one of work to one of um, back to learning, but learning from and with nature um, more than learning from and with people. And um, I plan on doing a lot more of that. And so my my bird photography is my true passion right now, in addition to um, these kinds of conversations. Oh, that's awesome. And I can vouch for the bird photography. So dope. Um, big oh, fan of birds, you. big fan of bird watching, big fan of being outside, <laughs> big fan of quiet. Love this. Can recommend highly. Um, Don, thank you so much for doing this and being here with us today. I can't thank you enough. We really value everything that you've shared with us and putting your story out there, being vulnerable and, you know, kind of letting people get a peek too into what our education system really can be like. And I think it just serves as a good reminder, this book, um, hopefully this podcast, but definitely this book that, um, you know, perspective change is good all the time. Yeah. It's, it's good to question the things and look around, you know? Yeah. Well, again, yeah. thank you. Thank you both for having me. It's been, like I said, I'm a huge fan. Um, and I, I, uh, I'm honored to be here more than anything else. And, uh, it's been it's been great talking to you. This has been this has been amazing. So thank you. Oh well, that's oh, so awesome, God. and thank you so much. And you can be the number one fan because I think you are the only one uh, right now. So top spot. I'll start the, I'll start the fan club. I'll Perfect. start the fan club, and then that can that can fund the. Uh, Okay, the and then we'll start the, the uh, Equality Lens podcast fan club. Okay. We'll be cool. ready and oh, waiting yeah. in when, it, when it launches here. Right. I'm, I'm really hoping that by the time we release this episode, you've got one live. All right. But okay. Until then, hey. That's a good challenge. <laughs> yep. good challenge. We'll follow up with you Your guys and let you know. Works. <laughs> okay. Yes. <laughs> well, as it turns out, our release dates didn't quite align, but be on the lookout for the first episode of Dawn's podcast next year. That's lead for equity with the number four. We hope you've enjoyed today's conversation and we'll reach out to add to it. You can find us on Instagram at bimbo bookshelf or reach out by email at bimbo bookshelf at gmail.com. If you did enjoy today's episode, please consider leaving us a review. It helps us recruit the others until next time.